0: Kia everyone, my name's Jonathan, I'm, I'm one of the leaders here at Urban Vineyard and um, this morning we're going to be carrying on in our series which we actually started last year. We've been meandering our way through the Apostles' Creed uh, just with a sense of conviction that it's good to get down to the foundations of our beliefs. Um, these are the core beliefs that the church has handed down from, from time it began. So we've been going through it and we've been discovering all kinds of interesting treasures along the way. We're on the home stretch this morning. I think we're we're almost almost at the end. Really, we've we've covered some of the big things: the unique roles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and their work. Um, <clears throat> that being said, the last lines aren't uh, insignificant or unimportant. They're as important, actually. Um, Anglican theologian and biblical scholar Michael Bird in his study of the Apostles' Creed, writes that the church is often one of the things forgotten or left out when we talk theology. The doctrines of the Trinity, the person of Christ, the Atonement, and even the Holy Spirit are big players on the theological team, while the doctrine of the church often gets left on the sidelines to carry the water. That is because, sadly, the church is usually treated as the packaging of theology rather than part of its content. But it's it is it, the church is theology. We are kind of living theology right now. Our beliefs about the church are important because the church is the, at the heart of God's mission in the world. We're not merely Jesus' fan club that gather every week and you know cheer each other on about how much how much we like Jesus. Um, we're actually part of a, uh, God's redemptive plan that's being worked out in the world. We're also a prototype of new creation, believe it or not. We're a, we're a A living um, sign of new creation uh, that that is being established among us um, and a beachhead of the kingdom of God. All of these things, which sort of in the ordinariness of church might be hard to hard to comprehend, and yet it's true. So when we say I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints, we ought to pause and consider exactly what such a confession means. And that's what we're kind of doing today. So we could probably spend a long time going through this topic because it is really central. It's really important um, and dive deep into it. But this morning I just want to offer a few thoughts around the four defining features of church. What, what is church? What is this thing we're doing? And how might these four defining features help us to uh, build our faith, I guess, for, for what this is all about and realign ourselves to this high calling that we have as God's people. But before looking at these four marks, I just want to, I guess, sketch a quick overview, hopefully a quick overview of, um, of what that phrase, the people of God, even means. So in its kind of full context, going right back through to the Old Testament, in the narrative of Scripture, the people of God are at the center of God's greatest salvation purposes in the whole world. The Bible presents the formation of the people of God um, firstly as a very literal act. God literally forms people out of the dirt. He creates humans. He creates man and, and woman. He creates Adam and Eve as his people. But it doesn't take long for for the people of God, Adam and Eve, to, to fall into the temptation to go, do life without God, basically, to usurp God's rule, to go their own way. And their failure of trust in God leads to their own disfigurement and their need for healing so this begins the big story that we're still part of which is the story of God's redemptive work in history and so to cut a long story short God begins this work of healing and restoring his people by electing uh, so if we think about this is the whole world and it, it sort of the whole world and all people are God's people but then God narrows, narrows down his, his purposes and his work down to one, one person and one family, the family of Abraham. So it narrows down to this representative person, Abraham, who will become the conduit of God's blessing in the world. And God is going to reach out to the world and, and offer his blessings back and start this healing process through this family, <clears throat> This family who God blesses and says, and in you and in your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham's family grows into this big tribal nation called Israel. And they're enslaved and rescued from slavery. And and then when they're out in the wilderness with God, he commissions them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, mediating God's blessings out into the world. So the one people of God now are mediating God's, uh, God's blessing out into the world, to all the other peoples of the world. Um, and uh, the way it's done is there's an invitation in to become part of the people of God. So if you look at the arrows there, the blessing is flowing through God's people. And the invitation is for all of the nations of the world to come and join, to come and become part of Israel's, you know, this, this family of God. We all know if we 've read our Old Testament that the Abraham's descendants really failed to live up to that promise they they instead they preferred to imitate the religious and social and economic systems of the world around them, which led them to being exiled and put under the control of foreign empires. However, while they were in exile, they had a prophetic tradition, and the prophets began to speak of this um, re Recreation of this hopeful promise that 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 the nations would stream in and, and um, that israel would would find its calling so and Isaiah in particular talks about he, he sees this picture of all of the nations in the world streaming to Zion, um, which is you know the mountain in, in Israel in the last days the mountain of the lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains it will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it so it's kind of like if You can imagine rivers going backwards, I guess. All of the nations are going uphill up towards Zion like a river. And many peoples will, will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the temple of God, of Jacob, and, and on and on. So the vision of the people of God is reinforced in the Old Testament as this bounded group with the very clear boundary markers of who's in and who's out. You've got to be ethnically Jewish, or you've got to be a Torah-observing person. And the hope would be that, um, yeah, as people take on the marks of Judaism—kosher food, Sabbath keeping, all of the all of the above—that um, and observing the wise patterns of God, which He gave the the people of Israel—that this would um, lead to, you know, an expression of God's blessing in the world jesus 's ministry happens in this context um, it 's within this context of the, this view of the people of God, what the people of God means and he He made it clear very, very frequently frequently in his ministry that his ministry was to the the lost sheep of Israel. he was not sort of focused on the Gentiles, he was focused on Israel, he was focused on the Jews because he was a Jew, and he was fulfilling this calling but then if you look in sort of if you look a little closer in the Gospel of Luke, you see that. That um, in particular, that Jesus's ministry tends to keep spilling out and blessing these Gentiles and social outcasts, and he's bringing them into the center. He's giving them pride of place, and you also see Jesus rejecting the temple. So he he says the temple is not the place where you go for forgiveness and healing, and um, and salvation. You actually come to me. So he he rejects the the temple system and the priestly system, and he inter- turns it around and says come to me for forgiveness, for healing, and for salvation, and you know um, that led to him getting in lots of trouble, <laughs> uh, so even his disciples were baffled, which just sort of shows how far the nation had drifted from its missional calling, and then we have Pentecost, and it 's sort of not really until Pentecost uh, that the disciples begin to understand that there's a different there's a different thing going on this Pentecost event is the beginning of this radical inclusion of all these people. Um and the people of God suddenly this category becoming much more expansive. Rather than being linked by common ancestry or keeping kosher rules and Sabbath keeping, uh all that it meant to be included was to, to have the Holy Spirit poured out on you and to yeah, to um to be under Jesus' Lordship. So the, the mission and teaching of the early church really centered on this good news that the Holy Spirit now is available to, to all people. And this is captured really beautifully in, um, in Acts 10 where Cornelius uh, Peter has gone to meet Cornelius and suddenly the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius, the Gentile Cornelius, this Roman centurion. And as a Jew, he's like, wow, <laughs> ah, now I get it. Now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So it's like it takes a long time for even Peter to figure it out. Ah, oh, this is for everybody, not just for Jews. So, and Paul was equally sort of stunned and gobsmacked um, when he saw the Holy Spirit falling on these Macedonian people when he was on his missionary trips. And he summed it up this way. So in Christ, you... Gentiles are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. So there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free or male or female. You're all one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. So hence the diagram. And heirs according to the promise. So all of the promises that kind of get funneled into this hourglass shape with Abraham at the pinch point and then it radiates out from Abraham, and then it kind of goes back into another p- pinch point with Jesus, and then it radiates out again to the whole world. This is the kind of picture of the the, the people of God. And the, as these ethnic boundaries are broken down, um, <clears throat> the, the logic was that because the, the Spirit's poured out on, on all people, on male and female, on slave and free, then all of these former boundary markers... Are now irrelevant. They've been rendered irrelevant. These social hierarchies, and that's why you have letters from people like Paul writing to a slave owner, saying, "Receive back your slave who's run away as your brother." And he didn't say set him free, but he said treat him as your brother. So he was so, so he's saying that category of slave owner and slave has to be over overcome with the with the category of brother in Christ. So yeah. That's, that's where we are in terms of the people of God. Obviously, as a church, not, we've, we've not always lived up to this calling. We've sometimes reinforced the world's patterns of racism and um, sexism and all of the other isms. Um, but the fundamental church, the vision of the church is the same. It's this boundary-smashing machine that, that says everybody gets in. Everybody's welcome. Even a Pākehā like me can be part of the people of God. So so this leads us to consider, I guess, the the marks, the defining marks of the church. And in the Apostles' Creed and in the Nicene Creed, there's four marks. It, it talks about the church's it, the, as oneness, it talks about the church's holiness, it talks about the church's Catholicity or, or universal presence, and it's... Um, apostolicity so it's this apostolic nature so i'm just gonna go through those four and then we'll be we'll be done so starting with the church's oneness jesus prayed that that all of his people would be one it's one of his famous prayers in john 17 he prayed that he that we would all be one just as he and the father are one now, I wonder, did he mean that we should all belong to one congregation, or should we all have one pastor or one pope say so, because sometimes people look at all the various denominations out there and they they say, "Ah, oh, what a shame! You know there's so much disunity in the church, all of these different denominations, if we could all just get into one church, then we'd be fulfilling Jesus' vision, his prayer, and they lament that we're not all one." But I think, I think this is not quite right. I think this is perhaps based on a, um, a misunderstanding of the various scales of what it means to be church. So there is only one church, and that church is Urban Vineyard. No, <laughs> no I'm joking. There, are, there is only one church in the world. We are part of it. There are multiple scales of gathering of the church. So the New Testament writers like Paul often address church at multiple scales. And so, so it's good for us to get our head around the way church can function in this way. So Paul can write to the church in Corinth. So he's writing to a regional church. He's writing to the church in a city, a, a large urban area. And he's also, within the same letter, he writes to local gatherings. So he addresses the household of Stephanus in the same letter. So he's writing at the, at the sort of city wide level and he's writing at the household level and he both he calls it both church it 's one church and then we know you know Jesus' own words where two or three are gathered together. I am there with them, so he's establishing the, the the smallest unit of what it means to be church so we have church when we have two or three gather, two or three Christians gathered together in a home we have church when we meet like this, we have church amongst all the churches that are meeting in this city. The church of Auckland is one church it 's not lots of different churches, it's just one church and we're all part of that church. So yeah, we can speak of the church in Auckland. We can also speak of the churches in Auckland. I think we can use that plural, but we're not invalidating the fact that we are all one church. We can speak of the the churches in Auckland, I guess at that third level, the, the church united as a local congregation, that's what we're experiencing right now. We're experiencing the church as a united local congregation. And there's there's churches all over the city. But, but at that higher level, we're all part of this church of Auckland. If, if Paul was writing to us, he probably would address that letter that way. So, <clears throat> um, and again... It's not just the sum total of all of the local churches. So um, it's not sort of an amorphous mass of Christians when we talk about the Church of Auckland. We're not talking about just this vague thing. We're talking about the sum of all of the all of these churches that are all meeting today. All of that is the church. So it exists in concrete groups. <clears throat> so we must, I guess, as best we can, try to do away with our language when we talk about going to church as if it's a building. Um, Because we are church and we are one church. Or changing churches if I'm going to change and go to a different church. There's one church. (laughs) We're all in it. You can't really go anywhere else. Um, So at best it's kind of confusing. And at worst it, 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 it can cut against the confession that the church is one. So whenever we gather with people who are wanting to live under Jesus' lordship, we are expressing a scale of this multiple scale of the church. And all the way up to the top, the church united across time, which is the church of our ancestors and the church that goes right back all the way to Jesus. So we're all part of this one church, which is what the, what the creed means when it says, I believe in one church. The second thing to say about the church is that it's Catholic. <laughs> you may be surprised to discover that. But it's not in a denominational sense, so it's not in the Roman Catholic sense. Catholic just means that it's universal. It includes all. So I'd like to think of Catholic in this usage as um, the, a microcosm of all society. So when the church is healthy, it's got every kind of person in it. It's got the rich and it's got the poor, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave free. It's got, it's got all of those divisions. It's got every tongue and every tribe and every nation. That's when the church is healthy. That's the, the Catholic church, when every everyone's included. Because we all share in the one baptism and the one meal, like like Matthew read out. And we all live under the one Lord and receive the same spirit. So, yeah, that's what it means to be a Catholic. So there's a Catholicity or universality to the membership of the church. And the other thing about that is that no no group has prominence over another. So no, like men can't have prominence over women. Um, um, masters can't have prominence over slaves. Jews can't have prominence over Gentiles. That's what it means to be Catholic. It means that everybody's identities are made relative. Um, and all of those old barriers are raised. Another aspect of the Catholicity of the church is that the, the Gospel itself is Catholic it doesn't just it doesn't just land with certain parts of our life it's not just a moral or a spiritual message it's a message for the whole person the gospel speaks to the whole person um, and it's a message that's as broad and as deep as life itself and so the church is this living expression of this gospel that reaches every part of our life and every kind of person and perhaps the most important yeah and most potent expression of the catholicity of the church is that it breaks down that that barrier between the living and the dead it's kind of a mysterious thing but we're part of one church which contains centuries of of faithful people who have fallen asleep in Christ So Jesus has stepped across even that gap even the gap between the living and the dead to unite us so his family is massive it stretches across the whole city it stretches across the whole world and it stretches across all of time and we're part of it. Amazing. So the third mark of the church is that it is holy. And this doesn't mean that the church is a place where sinners aren't welcome. It means that we taste and see glimpses of holiness taking over our lives. We, we live in the now and the not yet of this. We live in the now and the not yet of our identity as God's holy people. On the one hand, we are declared to be holy. That's sort of already now thing. You know, when, when we read the New Testament, the, the Christians are called holy. So it's our identity as God's holy people. And on the other hand, we're invited to be holy. So it's a both and. It's a now and a not yet. We are already holy and we're invited to be holy. And I think that's why you know you see it in Paul's address to the Corinthians. He calls them those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. So it's an identity and a calling. And I think it's important to recognize the difference as well between our um, cultural fixation on self-improvement um, and holiness because they're not the same thing. We can think of holiness as like I need to do more, be more, I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think holiness is something that God bestows on us. It's a gift that He gives us. He makes us clean, and He calls us holy and It's something we're called to grow in sort of like become who you are as we let the Spirit lead us and take the lead in our life. It's not a self improvement program, and it's not not to say it's not that it doesn't require work because it does, but it's work that's that it's Um, inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we might be in the habit of thinking of holiness as a kind of private thing, a kind of personal piety, um, a moralistic kind of look at what holiness is. But I think uh, that's not what makes the church an attractive place. It's not the primary thing which draws people in. Jesus said that the world will know us by the way we love one another. That's how. That's the defining mark of what it means to be a holy people. Um, an early church father named Oregon, who was one of the first apologists of the Christian faith in the Roman Empire, wrote a book defending Christianity against all of the wild accusations that were flying around at the time. And um, according to Oregon, Jesus's ultimate defense is visible in the lives of his genuine disciples as he writes for their lives cry out the real facts and defeat all false charges so our holiness makes us a peculiar people to the world and our our catholicity compels us to step over boundaries which have been set up across social divisions and that's what the world notices It's what the world sees and goes, wow. I think that's um, that's the kind of holiness that seems to matter the most to Jesus. We see in a very confronting passage in Matthew where Jesus says in a parable, um, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did you see when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So the, the defining mark of a holy people is in our love and action. That's what it means to be holy, a holy church. There's no sort of secret handshakes or you don't get a cool hat when you join the church or um, you know, learn a secret code. The only thing which tells us that we belong to this family is because we do the things that matter to Jesus. Now this is not like a I'm not trying to put something on us. Saying like I was saying earlier, it's the spirit which guides us into holiness. We are a holy people. But it's the spirit which will guide us into this kind of action. But these are the people that Jesus recognizes and says, You're Fano, you know, you're with me because you do the things that matter to me. That's what it means to be a holy church, I think. And finally, the church is an apostolic church, which um, means that we orient ourselves towards the the first century message. We orient ourselves towards the words of Jesus, to to what the gospel is, to what the apostles passed on, which is why we're doing this, you know, because we want to get to the root of what it is that makes us this peculiar people. Jesus left no instruction manual really he didn't like aside from the little bit of writing he did in the dirt he didn't write any books he didn't you know he didn't um give the disciples detailed instructions about how sundays should look or whether it should be on sunday or how many songs you should sing or should they come first or last he gave us basically nothing He gave us a meal and he said baptize and he said make disciples what does that mean make people who do the things that i do make me people who do the things I do. He didn't, he didn't seem interested really in establishing a new religion. Um, Aside from the words he wrote, yeah, he never wrote holy books. Everything he believed and knew about his father, he entrusted to his small group of people. It's kind of risky, you know. He's like, I'm working with these guys, these 11 (laughs) guys in the end, um, who will, I'm entrusting that they're going to pass it on. This is what it means to be apostolic, that we Join in with Jesus' little band of followers. So he didn't give them information, like I say. He gave them a way of life. He gave them a unique way of feasting and forgiving and healing and casting out demons and teaching and living a cross-shaped life and dying a cross-shaped death. That's what he gave them. And he invited them to follow his way, do do the things that I did, and teach others to do these things. And here we are trying to be an apostolic church. So it's not about, yeah, adopting a system of ideas or having the right boxes ticked. It's about being with Jesus, having our life tucked in with his life, being included in that circle of followers. And he's saying, come in, come on in. That's what it means to be Catholic. Come on in. Anyone, all of you are welcome in this circle. So when we gathered to to share the meal, um, we gathered to share the meal that he shared. We follow him in that way. And we witness to the presence of the Spirit and the presence of Jesus in each other's life every Sunday. Here we are, we, we've kind of changed the chairs around so we can see each other a bit better because we are the body of Christ. We see each other and we see Christ in each other. And belonging to the communion of saints means that all of our individual lives, all of our small stories, um, maybe they don't feel small, all of our despair all of our triumphs everything we kind of find it hidden in christ we tuck it in with him and we say my story you know almost like pin it on like i want my story to be part of your story I want my story just sort of tuck in into the folds of, of jesus's story and we discover that all of our individual stories become part of this bigger story which is jesus's story of what he's doing so this is what it means i think to be a church